Welcome to Internet Marketing for Smart People Radio. I am Robert Bruce. Brian Clark is with me today to spill the beans on his new multimedia email newsletter over at entreproducer.com. What is it? What is a minimum viable audience and why is it crucial to your startup ideas and products? These questions and more will be answered in the next few minutes. But let me start by asking, Brian, did you finally get out of South by Southwest? I did. I did. And immediately flew to Boulder, Colorado, uh, where it was 70 degrees and sunny while it was 43 and raining in Austin. Exactly the opposite experience that you want from South by Southwest, but uh, we may do. We, we did find a way to enjoy ourselves, I think. We did enjoy ourselves. I was looking for a little break from the rain, but um, that did not happen. You got, you know, all this talk about Texas being so hot and sunny didn't really come around for me. Well, I think your break was called Scotch. Okay, this show is brought to you by Internet Marketing for Smart People. It's the free 20-part online marketing course that your inbox cannot resist. Over 71,000 people have signed up for the course. And one of the reasons you should jump in is because it's so damn comprehensive. Sonia Simone, our chief marketing officer and one of the top content marketers working today, developed the course. She's been at this discipline and the discipline of dealing with Brian Clark for years. She knows what works, what doesn't work, and how to produce content that attracts an audience in order to sell products and ideas. She's distilled the very best that Copyblogger has published over the years into 20 easy emails. All you got to do is to take this free course is, uh, well, Brian, let's do this. Head over to copyblogger.com with me. Yeah. You there? Yep. Okay. Now scroll down a little bit, just uh, about halfway the homepage. What do you see there? Read that headline for me, if you will, Brian. This all looks familiar. I think I designed this page. I think you, yeah, I think you had something to do with it at least. So it says, grab our free 20-part internet marketing course. Then it's got some handy, compelling bullet points. A little social proof in the uh, amount of subscribers there. Mm-hmm. An arrow and then there's, there's even a link to more information if you need it. Or you can just go ahead and sign up. You can go there, read all you want about it by clicking that link. Or yes, the easiest way to do it is to drop your email address into that little box that says enter your email ad address and click the red sign me up button. And uh, if you do that, you'll be on your way and uh, we'll take care of the rest. So Brian, let's talk about this new venture and uh, in starting to do so, I want to know what is an entreproducer? Basically, that's a term I came up with about five or six years ago to try to describe the way we worked at Copyblogger. It really came up during 2007 when Tony Clark and I were building the first uh, Copyblogger product, which was Teaching Cells. I should say conceptualizing because we didn't build it before we launched it. And that's kind of one of the key tenets of what Entreproducer covers uh, going forward, and a lot of things have happened, you know, moved into software development and all that. So essentially, the way I think of it is an entrepreneur is someone who sees the opportunities in online content. And since it's a core aspect of the business model, um, I've adopted the producer, you know, slash writer producer concepts from Hollywood. 
such as, you know, the showrunners that have become famous now, the writer producers like uh, the guys from Lost and J.J. Abrams and all that kind of thing. Or it could be more like a pure producer who doesn't create an ounce of content, never writes a thing, but makes it happen with whatever resources and, and people are necessary to get it done. So the kind of things we're talking about here are, you know, we talk about content marketing at Copyblogger. Entreproducer is really, okay, how do you base a business around content marketing, uh, whether it be a completely new startup idea or really taking an entrepreneurial approach to reinventing an existing business, which I think is really what the smart people will do um, to gain an unfair advantage in, in whatever market we're talking about here. You'll, there's also all sorts of cool things coming down the pipe um, in transmedia, all these basically forms of media that really wouldn't work without the internet as kind of that thing that ties everything together. And a lot of the traditional content industry are not going to go after these things because they're risky or they don't understand it or whatever. So there's opportunities for entrepreneurs there. And, you know, as you mentioned, it's also Entreproducer is the name of my new newsletter, which I'm publishing as a way to finally write a book. This is what it took then, huh? Well, it had to be the right thing, you know. I mean, I, I just never felt the need to write a basic content marketing book or anything like that. We give that stuff away for free on Copyblogger. That's always been our model. We'll give you, you know, we'll teach you as much as we can of the basics in order to get you going. And then, of course, we'll help you out. If you need a deeper course, you know, you've got teaching cells. You need software, you need a design, um, you need help with conversion, all of that stuff. So that's always been our model. And I think uh, by not running off and writing a book and instead giving that content away for free has really been the key factor in our success so far. So you really don't want to mess with that. All right. Speaking of the newsletter, uh, the free content that you're giving out on Entreproducer, you've just released the latest uh, newsletter article, and it's about something you call the minimum viable audience. And uh, linked it in the show notes below. But talk about that for a bit, the minimum viable audience, if you will. Okay. So it, it's, a, it's kind of a play on the term minimal viable product, which is kind of a core tenant of the lean startup movement. Um, a, a guy named Steve Blank cashed out during the dot-com craze and um, became more of an a academic and advocate of these kind of lean principles applied to startups. And, uh, of course, Eric Ries, I hope that's how you pronounce his last name, put out the book The Lean Startup last year, which was a huge hit and has started this entire movement, you know, beginning with Eric's blog and carrying on with the book. It's It's really cool to see and of course, um, the tie in between the two is that Steve Blank was a mentor of Eric's um, at his company that he uses as an example in the book, The Lean Startup. So I'm totally down with the whole lean startup thing. We have run Copyblogger for the last six years according to those principles. The interesting thing was that I started leaner than they do in that I started with a blog and, and was looking for the audience to tell me what the business model was. And that's one of Steve Blank's big thing. It's, he's like, you know, startups are not companies 
in the normal sense. They're really a search for a scalable and repeatable business model. So once you find that model, then you've got a real company. Um, so with Copyblogger, I'd say we became a real company in the fall of 2007 when we started getting paid. But before then, the blog, the audience, was the mechanism by which the first product came to light. So in, in the typical lean startup model, you begin with a minimum viable product, something that people will actually buy. That's important. You know, it, people will only really tell you what they're willing to buy by buying it. Uh, focus groups, asking people what they would buy, horrible waste of time, and will always give you bad data because people don't know what they want. I think the late Mr. Jobs said that's the job of the entrepreneur or the business person to, given all the available information and data possible, figure out what it is that the consumer wants. Don't, you can't ask them. It's not their job to know. And I think that's dead on. In fact, I think if you ask, you will get the wrong answer and you will end up failing worse if you didn't bother to ask anyone at all. Hmm. So the minimum viable product is something that you build. It could be quite shaky. It could be a software product that's held together with duct tape and it's not stable. But conceptually, if people buy it, then you take feedback from them and you immediately make it better. And this is how all Copyblogger products have been developed with one key difference. We make better minimum viable products because we have this audience who we are interacting with, serving with content at such a, a level of, I almost want to say intimacy in that it's not like market research that is uh, very arm's length or anything like that. I mean, it, with social media, you're right there. You put something out, people comment, people, you know, everyone's got something to say about it. And that there's, I've always said that social media is the greatest free market research environment ever because people are responding in authentic ways as opposed to telling you what you want to hear or things like that. Yeah, this so is very the, different than the test subjects in a lab, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is the world. I mean, it is. It may be the online world, but it's still the best thing we've got for kind of people's reactions and, and sort of unfiltered responses to something that's topically relevant to them, which is your content. So basically, all I'm taking here with the minimum viable audience is exactly what we did with Copyblogger, which is before you try to come up with that first product, build an audience, they're your test group, they're the ones who become fans of what you're doing so far, they want you to sell something to them, and because of that relationship, you'll have a much better and more concrete vision of what they actually want. So your minimum viable product has a much better chance of being truly viable um, and is actually a little bit farther along than you would be if you just started with an idea and tried to test it. Let me ask you just to, just to be really clear here. I think I remember you saying these are not direct questions that you're asking the audience. Most of what you developed and came up with in the early days and still do today um, as a, a, we as a company, it comes from observation, right? 
observation yeah. in various places, like you said, through social media, as opposed to direct questions, what do you want? Yeah, exactly. And so we've never done a survey. We've never done really, you know, you ask for feedback, sure, but you keep it very open-ended. Um, if you are going to do any kind of surveying, and, and people have made that work when they have a responsive audience, always ask open-ended questions. Don't use multiple choice. You'll you'll pollute your sample by suggesting certain things. There's a real art to that, and even research scientists screw it up a lot of times, um, which I think you alluded to earlier. So yeah, uh, with the totality of it all, you're you're by developing content, you are intimately involved with it, an area of relevant knowledge that you're trying to teach, transmit, share, whatever. And then you also get to see how people react to that content. Um, that's how we develop our content. Um, but through that process, you also get just invaluable information that you wouldn't get otherwise. And, and this is all based, the, the whole title of the Lean Startup comes from Lean Manufacturing or Lean Production, which is actually a big company thing that was developed by Toyota decades ago for efficient manufacturing processes. And it was, it was totally focused on value to the customer, uh, efficiency, and avoidance of waste. And that's why the lean principles are so perfect for a startup because the definition of an entrepreneur is someone who tries to make something happen with only the resources at hand, which is usually pretty thin and should be thin, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Yeah, in the context of the minimum viable audience model then, what about promotion? What about getting the word out? How does that work? Does it is it more of a natural process or are you actively going out, you know, seeking promotional opportunities? Yeah, in the context of a minimum viable audience, um, product development is only one aspect of what that audience can do for you. I mean, what we're talking about here is not a passive audience sitting in a theater or on the couch. Um, what they are is a networked audience that, that can become a community of advocates for you. So there's really three prongs to a minimum viable audience. One is the point where you have enough of a regular audience, people who have you know, given permission to, for you to contact them or, or they've subscribed to your feed or you know, they are following you in the parlance of, of social networking. So the point when you have enough audience feedback so that you know how to adapt the content itself. So the lean principles of, you know, you start off with your best guess of what the audience will go for, which is essentially, you know, a product of research and positioning. So when I first started Copyblogger, it was my recognition that people needed help uh, with their blog content, and it was at the intersection of copywriting and content. Um, that was my best guess for Copyblogger. And there was also enough room in that position to keep going. But I knew I wasn't going to just nail it right from the beginning. You have to just start somewhere that's good enough. It's just like the minimum viable product thing. It's your best guess, and then you have to put it out there and see what people actually do. So in, in the content development st standpoint, it's about what are people you know, commenting on, saying they found helpful, sharing. Sharing is the social media equivalent of buying, right? Um, they start advocating 
your blog or your video or your podcast or, or whatever format you're taking to develop content, you're getting feedback enough to realize what they like and what they don't like. And a lot of that can be down to what's popular and what's not, but not exclusively. And that's, I think, people tend to just say, well, popular is good and unpopular is bad. To a certain degree, that's kind of right. The audience rules, right? Um, But you also will glean insights into what do they need connecting each of these kind of blockbuster pieces of content in order to truly get the value that they're looking for with whatever it is, the problem they have or the desires they have. So that's the first thing. The second one is kind of related in that a minimum viable audience will start promoting your content via social media themselves. And that's the part that people struggle with. You know, I remember my first three months of copy blogger, um, I was plugging along, creating the core content for the site, which is now copywriting 101 and a couple of other of those. But I kept trying these various content events, like something beyond just a, a blog post. And I tried a couple things and they didn't really work. Um, and then three months in, I released a PDF report that, uh, that went viral. And of course, it was about viral marketing. You know, that's, that was the day I knew that I was doomed to be metafabulous. Copyblogger was going to have to, <laughs> Copyblogger was going to have to teach and demonstrate at the same time with a very transparent wink at the audience saying, you can, you can listen to what I say or you can watch what I do, but they're both designed the to be congruent. Yeah. And that's really where our practice, what we preach mantra came from because that's what worked for us. Um, you can't talk about marketing and pretend like you're not doing it at the same time. In fact, I, I think that was a detriment. So that was something that we learned from the audience um, by what actually happened very early on. And then the third aspect is what we kind of already touched on, which is when you're developing content week in and week out for, for an audience, a, a type of person um, related to a topic. It, some people put the topic first. It's really people. It's a certain type of person you're trying to reach. Um, and when you tune in at that level to that type of person in the aggregate as an audience, then you really start to see what's missing. What are they lacking other than the, than the knowledge you're sharing? Sometimes you make content mistakes where people don't understand what you're saying. That's an aspect of, of number one, which is audience feedback helps you make better content. The second aspect is beyond my content, what else is it that they need? And that's how every copy blogger product has been born. Very quickly, what's a good example out in the real world of a company or individual who's uh, used this minimum viable audience well, whether they knew it or not? There's tons of people. I mean, every person with a successful blog that's now a business has done this. And, and it's not limited to blogging. But I think a lot of this came out of the you know, middle of last decade, the, the people who jumped on the blog, blogging thing and you know, experimented with advertising to, to various degrees of success. Um, some people still do have advertising models, but all of them have added, you know, actually selling things to it. So, you know, Darren Rouse is a better example for digital photography school, which was his passion and is 
his big, big business. ProBlogger is not how Darren makes most of his money. So he, he basically created a community around sharing content about uh, digital photography, and that's a great business for him. And it started out with building the audience, not with making money or knowing exactly what it was he was going to sell. Uh, Leo of Zen Habits. Basically, this guy had a life philosophy. He built an audience around it, and now he's living the dream. Moved from Guam to San Francisco, supporting his rather large family. Bless him. <laughs> I don't know how he manages that many kids. But, <laughs> but yeah, same thing. 37 Signals, uh, which I always love to use as an example because – you know, back in 2005, before I started CopyBlogger, I looked at 37 Signals. They had just moved into software. And I was like, wow, it's too bad I can never do that. You know, but it did happen because I built an audience. And over the course of the years following, these opportunities presented themselves thanks to having the audience in the first place. And we can talk about that in a little more detail. But uh, 37 Signals was a, a design shop. Uh, with that built a big following based in part a lot on their unique philosophies and an utter lack of shyness about sharing them. And, you know, when they went into software, they're like, well, Basecamp's what we needed for ourselves. But of course, at some point they recognized, you know, if we need it, then this audience we have needs it. And that's really when 37 Signals as we know it today began Um, And that's what I like to call an example of of being a member of your own market, which I think has benefited me as well, which is I'm an online publisher serving other online publishers, which has helped along with the feedback from the audience tell me, you know, what is it we all collectively need to do a better job? Yeah, this people over topic thing is really wild. We need to uh, revisit this again at some point, but like Derek, Darren uh, Rouse is a great example of that. I obviously follow him. I know him. I uh, watch what he does. I learn from him, but honestly, I could care less about digital photography school. It's an amazing resource, an amazing site, but me personally. So on one hand, I'm watching, you know, all the moves he makes, but this other world that he's created for those other people you know, around this topic, it's, it's, this is kind of endlessly fascinating to me. So let's, uh, let's circle back around in coming weeks. Well, or you know, just on that, it, it is the intersection of, you know, in this case, a passion, a hobby, but again, it's not about, you can't, if you create content, that's just about a topic and ignore the fact that you're primarily there to serve people it's really marketing 101, but it's applied to the world of content development in that it's always about the people. You don't know how to frame the content, the topic, unless you understand something about the type of person and what drives them to do this certain behavior, in this case, taking photography, you know, taking pictures. And what our man Schwartz say, never, ever, ever lose touch with the people, um, which is why he spent so much time in, uh, quote unquote, trashy magazines uh, and the like. Um, And he also said that you can't create desire. You can only channel it. And that's what Darren did. These people were out there. Uh, He shared an affinity with them. 
he decided to serve that market of existing desire. That's a perfect, you know, I'm sure Darren has no idea that he's such the epitome of what Eugene Schwartz said, because only <laughs> copywriting geeks like us think about that. But yeah, yeah. no, it's a, it's a great example. It's almost over two years I've seen uh, now the firsthand the power of an audience uh, within Copyblogger. But for those who aren't convinced of this concept of minimum viable audience, what are the benefits of starting with an audience over the typical lean startup approach? Yeah, well, the first thing is something we've kind of already touched on. But um, I want to refer back to, I know you read that Seth Godin post from I think maybe last week, well, where I think it was something like, when does marketing start? Yep. Right? Yep. And that's the thing. Um, I think a lot of people who go into entrepreneurship wanting to start up a company, you know, they, they tend to compartmentalize it. Well, then there's, there's product, and then there's, and if you're focused on content, well, there's content, and then there's something over here called marketing. No, it's all marketing. And that Seth has been saying that for years, and I wholeheartedly agree and that nothing mm-hmm. offends people more because they have preconceptions about what marketing is. But an entrepreneur is a marketer, first and foremost. That's what they do. They create something and take it to market. That's the definition. And to create something that people want to buy is the very first step. So we, we hear about the, the exception cases where someone just dreams something up, puts it out there, and it's a home run, which, of course, we, we celebrate and glamorize these stories. But it's like less than, I don't even know how minuscule this could be. Half the 1% might be too much compared to all the, thing, all the companies that fail, all the ideas that go nowhere, all the products yeah. that are developed and are just left alone. And that's just not a function of reach. That's another misconception that it, it, I have a great product. If, if, if I could just get on CNN, it would take off. Well, you're probably not getting on CNN because really nobody wants what you made. You thought it was a great idea, but you didn't have any kind of viable reason why other people might like it beyond that. And again, that's, that's what the lean startup movement is all about. Finding out as quickly as possible, is this a viable idea? Is this a viable product? And, you know, according to the way we've done it and a way a lot of other people have done it, the way to begin that process is to serve a market before you've even got something to sell. And the way to do that is with content because at the same time, you're accomplishing so many other things. So let's just start with that premise that, Serving an audience will give you a better shot at creating something they actually want. You know, not to mention that when you have fans, a lot of them will buy anything you put out as long as it's reasonably competent, right? I mean, I'm not, you, we've never advocated putting out junk. You, you're not going to get away with it. That's, that's rule number one. There are many quality things that have been created that aren't junk, but nobody wants them. Hmm. That's a distinction. Okay, keep in mind, it doesn't mean it's bad, it just means it's undesirable. Channel existing desire. Connecting with an audience is the epitome of what Schwartz had to read those trashy magazines for. Not to say you're building a trashy 
audience. Right, you know, right. <laughs> you get the the point. Step into he, he a had to stay river. in touch with whatever market he was serving with his copy. That's right. Uh, the best way to do this is you know basically take something you're interested in or good at, making you part of that market, and connecting on a deeper level. So it's like the best form of market research there is. Um, not saying you can't start with the minimum viable product approach, but there's other benefits to having an audience that goes beyond that. So another point that which we've touched on, having that additional insight connection uh, that comes from constantly having to try to make a certain type of person's life better with content. In other words, solving problems or satisfying desires will help you build a better first product or a better minimum viable product. So it's even with us, it's always been version 1.0. We only put in what we know is necessary or desirable, right? And then we know it's not going to be perfect. There is no way. Um, you've got to get it out there. This is the whole idea behind you've got to ship. Until you actually sell something to people, you have no idea. You really don't. I mean, you've got an, a better educated guess because you have the audience. But once it's out there, there are going to be things that people tell you you did right. There are going to be things people wish they had. And there are going to be things that people point out that you did wrong. That's just the way it is. And that's, a, that's one of the principles of lean, which is start off with your best guess. Understand that it can always be better. And number three, never stop making it better. Um, so you've seen that over time with the evolution of teaching sales. Every software product keeps evolving, getting better. But I think the, the reason why um, we've been able to succeed, one part is that we start off at a better 1.0 than someone who didn't have the audience insight that we have. Another benefit, of course, is essentially the true story of CopyBlogger, which is all I ever truly built was the audience. Uh, Tony Clark and I collaborated in 2007 to create Teaching Cells. Later, Sonia joined. She was one of the first members of Teaching Cells and then ends up on the team um, and took it to the next level. All the software products started the same way. Someone outside came to me and said, hey, I've got this and you've got the audience, so let's team up and do it. Um, and of course, that happened over and over until 2010, where we merged all the companies together to form CopyBlogger Media. What people don't see from the outside is everything I said no to. People, you know, they, they look and say, wow, you know, I've heard people say that, that CopyBlogger Media has a, a Midas touch. Everything we touch turns to gold. You know, it's true. We've never had a product fail. All of them are doing quite well. But the, the truth is that so many more things were brought my way that I said no to, way more than I ever said yes to. And again, that's the same thing as building a better minimum viable product, being able to choose what's right over what might be a fast buck. Now, I like money as much as the next guy, but there is no way I'm going to destroy my primary asset of, of the audience on a crappy product or, or just something that's a short-term gain but a long-term pain. And 
you know, people came to me with stuff constantly and I ignored, I'd say, 70% of it. So again, to quote the master, Master Jobs, you know, what you say no to is more important, is just as important as what you say yes to. And again, if I didn't know the audience so well from serving that audience through content, I might not have been as good a judge in that context, uh, or I might have just sold out because I needed the money because I wasn't doing very well. Seems like this minimum viable audience, the content that you're talking about, it seems like it's also a great remedy for this uh, (laughs) incredibly popular word that we keep hearing over and over lately, pivot. These companies doing these massive, expensive pivots from one product to another, turning, trying to turn this, you know, what might be a monster in some cases, but in content and in building an audience, you're doing a thousand little pivots, right? That are less painful. It's easier. It's less expensive. It's better. Yeah. Yeah. That's an excellent point. There is nothing wrong. That's another key concept of the lean startup is the pivot. Um, I think you're pointing out some of the larger mistakes um, that perhaps I think could have been remedied by having um, a, a tighter relationship, having fans instead of just, you know, market segments and all the impersonal approaches. But yeah, I mean, a, a huge pivot is kind of a form of waste on one hand, or it could be seen as saving the day on the other. Uh, but if, if such a huge pivot could have been avoided because you had a better starting point with audience, then you are serving one of the key tenets, again, of lean ideology, which is don't waste, you know. Another thing here on on the waste front is that, so the lean startup thing has gained all this traction, and uh, Eric and Steve have got to be pleased about that. So, but at South by Southwest, they had the lean startup track. I mean, it was like a whole day dedicated to it. And one of our colleagues, who will remain unnamed, said that she was disappointed that the main question over and over was, how do I raise money? And I think everyone on the other side of the table must have been slapping their forehead because that's the wrong way to think about it. Getting investment money based on an idea alone without understanding anything about it um, or, or having any sort of asset that lets you know how much money you truly need, to me, is the epitome of waste. For one, you're, you're wasting equity, right? Right off the bat, you're giving away a part of your company you haven't even tried. I mean, there's a lot to be said for bootstrapping beyond necessity. Um, it seems to me that anyone can get money these days because everyone wants to be an angel investor. You know, I mean, it's, I've seen it happen before. It's that irrational exuberance. A lot of bad ideas are, are getting funded and a lot of money's being wasted. Uh, but from the other side of the coin, why would you give up X percentage of your company before you know for sure what it's going to take? And, you know, you are, you're also wasting control, right? You're wasting flexibility because as soon as investors get involved, you know, you may still be majority owner, but they have a say um, and they have a very uh, kind of ingrained traditional way of the way things should be done. And if you're truly being a revolutionary, maybe they don't like that. Um, that's always what scared me and why we've never taken money. 
Um, we get more offers to take money now that were ultra profitable than you know at the beginning, and we're still very wary of it. If our goals can only be accomplished six years later with as informed a decision as we can now make, and we decided to take money, well, then I don't think anyone could say we you know, weren't thinking it through because that would be wrong. Um, but I'm still not sure I want to do that kind of thing. The, the real point here is if you build an audience and they give you a better idea of what it is they actually want to buy and someone comes along with you to partner or, you know, joint venture, whatever, you know, on that product alone, you're not wasting anything and you're not risking anything because if it doesn't work out, you've really not done anything. You just keep moving on. So there's a lot of reasons why your first step raising money um, is, I think, a huge mistake that you may end up regretting later. Every, every funded company founder I talk to these days who understands that we never took money they don't even try to hide their jealousy. They're just like, you don't know how good you've got it. Don't take money. I'm like, okay, I know, I know. But, but especially at the very beginning. I know Jason um, of 37 Signals is a big advocate of bootstrapping, that you know, taking money makes you lazy. Taking money makes you focused on spending money instead of you know, actually being creative about what needs to get done. All I'm saying is you could bootstrap an audience that's been done a million times, not only by us, but everyone. Every example I've given so far, and I'm countless others out there, and that was why they didn't have to get funding. The audience gives you all sorts of opportunities, all sorts of, of data about what's an actual thing they want. And, and the final point I'll finally say is, even without all this other stuff, in the process of building an audience, you're building a valuable media asset. I know, I'm, Robert, on the show, I've told you the story before, before we merged all the companies together, that I got a seven-figure offer from a publicly traded company for copyblogger.com. That's it. Just not, the site. Yeah, not all the other companies I held an interest in that, that actually make money. <laughs> they wanted the platform. And they had an advertising model uh, among some other stuff that they thought. So that's how they valued the offer, which was still substantial. But as far as I was concerned, it wasn't even in the ballpark because it's way more valuable to me with the products than it is without. Um, if, if we were ever to sell off the company piece by piece, product line by product line, which I doubt would ever happen. But if it did, copyblogger.com would be the last thing to go. Um, but my point is, it still itself has value. You know, people make a living flipping sites all the time. You know, they, they usually don't take it as far as I did to get up to that level. But, you know, when in 2006, people forget that the first way Copyblogger actually made money was by launching Tutorial off of it in 2006 before YouTube sold. We kind of saw the writing on the wall about online video. And then eight months later, we sold it for six figures. So in part, Copyblogger was profitable before then, uh, but I don't count that because it was kind of a spinoff thing. 
but you're building media assets. People will pay money for them. People who are not good at what you do, which is create content. So that I'll close on that one because that should be the icing on the cake. Yeah, I can hear people out there asking, okay, this is all fantastic, but how do we actually build the audience? How do we build this platform? How do we produce the content to do these things uh, as an entrepreneur? Well, first of all, I always point people to six years of copyblogger archives there, uh, <laughs> starting with that very newsletter that you so eloquently pitched at the beginning. Uh, it really is a, a great resource. It really ties the topic together to get Lebowski on you. But from a strategic standpoint, from a, from a business entrepreneur mindset, that is what the very next article on entrepreneur will be about, where I kind of lay out how these lean startup principles actually also apply to content development, content marketing, and how that's how I started the copy blogger before Tony ever came along and explained to me what I was doing. <laughs> so, <laughs> and at that point, we we're like, oh, well, we just keep more of this, but now we know what it's called. Uh, and that was back in 2007. So, Again, I'm really glad to see the whole lean movement really going wide. I think there's still a lot of uh, confusion out there, and I think there is a lot to be said for building an audience instead of chasing down investors. So anyway, in the show notes, as you mentioned, the article about the minimum viable product uh, audience, that is, um, will be already there. Uh, But if you want next week's article, sign up for free. And uh, basically... I'm using the very technique that I, that I talk about in that article with the newsletter to write the book. So it, you, at a minimum, you get the book in pieces for free up front, and you get a ringside seat to watch me as I do it, same as it ever was, Metafabulous. All right. So the way to get the goods from Entreproducer is through email. Just uh, We'll have a link on this post and uh, in the show notes, of course. But that is Entreproducer.com. Thank you, everyone out there, for listening. We really appreciate it. Mr. Clark, you are without equal among CEO DJs. Thank you. <laughs> I'll agree with that. Wow.